Disc three. Joe scowled. She didn't like George, and she didn't want to look like her. She's even got George's scowl," said Anne. Joe turned her back at once, and Joanna then got the benefit of the scowl. "My word, what an ugly creature you are!" said Joanna. "You be careful; the wind doesn't change. You might get your face stuck like that." "Oh, come on," said Julian impatiently. "Joe, do you hear me? Come along now and take us to Raven's Wood." Jake might see us. Said Joe sulkily, she was determined to put off going as long as she could. Yes, he might," said Julian, who hadn't thought of that. Well, you go on a long way ahead, and we'll follow. We won't let Jake know you're leading us anywhere. At last, they set off. Joanna had packed them up a meal in case they wanted one. Julian slipped the package into a bag and slid it over his shoulder. Joe slipped out the back way, went down to the bottom of the garden, and made her way out to the lane through a little thicket. The others went out of the front gate and walked up the lane slowly, watching for Joe to appear. There she is," said Julian. "Come on, we must keep the little wretch in sight. I wouldn't be surprised if she gave us the slip even now." Joe danced on in front, a good way ahead. She took no notice of the others behind. And they followed steadily. Then suddenly, something happened. A dark figure strode out from the hedge, stood in front of Joe, and said something to her. She screamed and tried to dodge away, but the man caught hold of her and firmly pulled her into the hedge. It was Jake," said Dick. "I'm sure it was Jake. He was watching out for her. Now, what do we do?" Chapter Fourteen, Simmy's Caravan. They all hurried up to the place where Jake had caught hold of Joe. There was absolutely nothing to be seen except a few broken twigs in the hedge. No Jake, no Joe. There was not a sound to be heard either, not a scream from Joe, not a shout from Jake. It was as if both had faded into the hedge and disappeared. Dick squeezed through the hedge and into the field beyond. Nobody was there either, except a few cows, who looked at him in surprise, their tails whisking. "There's a little copse at the end of the field," called back Dick. "I bet they're there. I'll go and see." He ran across the field to the copse, but there was nobody there either. Beyond the copse was a row of huddled-up cottages. Dick looked along the untidy row, exasperated. I suppose Jake's taken her to one of those. He thought angrily, probably lives there. Well, he won't let her go. That's certain. He most likely guesses that she's in with us now. Poor Joe. He went back to the others, and they had a low-voiced conference in the lane. Let's tell the police now, begged Anne. No, let's go to Ravenswood ourselves. Said Dick, "We know where it is. We wouldn't be able to go the way Joe would have taken us, but at least we can go by the map." Yes, I think we will," said Julian. "Come on then, quick march." They went on up the lane, took a field path, and came out eventually onto a road. A bus passed them in the opposite direction to which they were going. 
When we come to a bus stop, we'll find out if one goes anywhere near Raven's Wood, said Julian. It would save a lot of time if we caught a bus. We'd be there long before Jake, if he thinks of going to warn Joe's father we're on the way. I bet Joe will tell him. You might as well trust a snake as that slippery little thing. I hate Joe, said Anne, almost in tears. I don't trust her a bit, do you, Dick? I don't know, said Dick. I can't make up my mind. She hasn't really proved whether she's trustable or not yet. Anyway, she came back to tell us all she knew last night, didn't she? I don't believe she did come back for that, said Anne, obstinately. I believe she was coming back to pry and snoop. You may be right, said Dick. Look, here's a bus stop and a timetable. A bus did apparently go quite near Ravenswood and was due in five minutes' time. They sat down on the bus stop seat and waited. The bus was punctual and came rumbling down the road, full of women going to Raven's Market. They all seemed very plump women and had enormous baskets, so it was difficult to squeeze inside. Everyone got out at Raven's Market. Julian asked his way to Raven's Wood. There it is, said the conductor, pointing down the hill to where trees grew thickly in the valley. It's a big place, don't get lost, and look out for the travellers. There's usually hordes of them there. Thanks, said Julian, and the three of them set off down the hill into the valley. They came to the wood. It's a proper wood, said Anne. Nothing but trees and trees. I should think it gets very thick in the middle, like a forest. They came to a clearing where there was a little traveller's camp. Three rather dirty-looking caravans stood together, and a crowd of children were playing some sort of a game with a rope. Julian took a quick look at the caravans. All had their doors open. No George here, he said in a low voice to the others. I wish I knew exactly where to go. I suppose if we follow this broad pathway it would be best. After all, Joe's caravan must have a fairly broad way to go on. Can't we ask if anyone knows if Joe's caravan is anywhere about? said Anne. We don't know her father's name, said Julian. But we could say it's a caravan drawn by a horse called Blackie and that a girl called Joe lives in it with her father, said Anne. Yes, I'd forgotten the horse, said Julian. He went up to an old woman who was stirring something in a black pot over a fire of sticks. Julian thought she looked very like a witch. She peered up at him through tangled grey hair. Can you tell me if there's a caravan in the wood drawn by a horse called Blackie? He asked politely. A girl called Jo lives in it with her father. We want to see her. The old woman blinked. She took an iron spoon out of the pot and waved it to the right. Simmy's gone down away there, she said. I didn't see Joe this time, but the caravan door was shut, so maybe she was inside. What do you want with Joe? Oh, only just to see her, said Julian, quite unable to think up a good reason for going to visit on the spur of the moment. Is Simmy her father? The old woman nodded and began to stir her pot again. Julian went back to the others. This way, he said, and they went down the rutted path. 
It was just wide enough for a caravan to go down. Anne looked up. Tree branches waved overhead. I should think they brush against the roof of a caravan all the time, she said. What a funny life to live. In a little caravan, day in and day out, hiding yourself away in woods and fields. They walked on down the path, which wound about through the trees, following the clear spaces. Sometimes the trees were so close together that it seemed impossible for a caravan to go between. But the wheel ruts showed that caravans did go down the path. After a time, the wood became thicker and the sunlight could hardly pierce through the branches. Still the path went on, but now it seemed as if only one set of wheel ruts was marked on it. They were probably the wheels of Simi's caravan. Here and there a tree was shorn of one of its branches, and a bush uprooted and thrown to one side. Simi meant to go deep into the wood last time he came, said Julian, pointing to where a bush lay dying by the side of the path. He's cleared the way here and there. Actually, we aren't on a proper path any longer. We're only following wheel ruts. It was true. The path had faded out. They were now in a thick part of the wood with only the ruts of the caravan wheels to guide them. They fell silent. The wood was very quiet. There were no birds singing, and the branches of the trees were so thick that there was a kind of green twilight round them. I wish we had Timmy with us, half whispered Anne at last. Julian nodded. He had been wishing that a long time. He was also wishing he hadn't brought Anne. But when they had started out, they had Joe with them to guide them and warn them of any danger. Now they hadn't. I think we'd better go very cautiously, he said in a low voice. We may come on the caravan unexpectedly. We don't want Simmy to hear us and lie in wait. I'll go a little way in front and warn you if I hear or see anything, said Dick. Julian nodded to him, and he went on ahead, peering round the trees when he came to any curve in the wheel-rut path. Julian began to think of what they would do when they reached the caravan. He was pretty certain that both George and Timmy would be found locked up securely inside. If we can undo the door and let them out, Timmy will do the rest, he thought. He's as good as three policemen. Yes, that's the best plan. Dick suddenly stopped and lifted up his hand in warning. He peered round the trunk of a big tree and then turned and nodded excitedly. He's found the caravan, said Anne, and her heart began its usual thump, thump, thump of excitement. Stay here, said Julian to Anne, and went on quietly to join Dick. Anne crept under a bush. She didn't like this dark, silent wood with the green light all round. She peered out, watching the boys. Dick had suddenly seen the caravan. It was small, badly needed painting, and appeared quite deserted. No fire burned outside. No Simmy was sitting anywhere about. Not even Blackie the horse was to be seen. The boys watched intently for a few minutes, not daring to move or speak. There was absolutely no sound 
all movement from the tiny clearing in which the caravan stood. Windows and doors were shut. The shafts rested crookedly on the ground. The whole place seemed deserted. Dick, whispered Julian at last, Simmy doesn't seem to be about. This is our chance. We'll creep over to the caravan and look into the window. We'll attract George's attention and get her out as soon as we can. Timmy, too. Funny he doesn't bark, said Dick, also in a whisper. I suppose he can't have heard us. Well, shall we get over to the caravan now? They ran quietly to the little caravan, and Julian peered through the dirty window. It was too dark inside to see anything at all. George, he whispered. George, are you there? Chapter 15 Anne Doesn't Like Adventures There was no answer from inside the caravan. Perhaps George was asleep, or drugged, and Timmy too. Julian's heart sank. It would be dreadful if George had been ill-treated. He tried to peer inside the window again, but what with the darkness of the wood and the dirt on the pane, it really was impossible to see inside. Shall we bang on the door? asked Dick. No, that would only bring Simmy if he's anywhere about, and if George is inside and awake, our voices would have attracted her attention, said Julian. They went quietly round the caravan to the door at the back. It had no key in the lock. Julian frowned. Simmy must have got the key with him. That would mean breaking down the door and making a noise. He went up the few steps and pushed at the door. It seemed very solid indeed. How could he break it down anyway? He had no tools, and it didn't look as if kicking and shoving would burst it in. He knocked gently on the door. Rap, rap, rap. Not a movement from inside. It seemed very strange. He tried the round handle, and it turned easily. It not only turned easily, but the door opened. Dick, it's not locked, said Julian, forgetting to whisper in his surprise. He went inside the dark caravan, hardly hoping now to see George or Timmy. Dick pushed in after him. There was a nasty, sour smell, and it was very untidy. Nobody was there. It was quite empty, as Julian had feared. He groaned. All this way for nothing. They've taken George somewhere else. We're done now, Dick. We haven't a clue where to go next. Dick fished his torch out of his pocket. He flashed it over the untidy jumble of things in the caravan, looking for some sign that George had been there. But there was nothing at all that he could see to show him that either Timmy or George had been there. It's quite likely that Joe made the whole story up about her father taking George away, he groaned. It doesn't look as if they've been here at all. His torch flashed onto the wooden wall of the caravan, and Dick saw something that caught his attention. Somebody had written something on the wall. He looked more closely. Julian, isn't that George's writing? Look, what's written there? Both boys bent towards the dirty wall. Red Tower, Red Tower, Red Tower was written again and again in very small writing. 
Red Tower, said Dick. What does that mean? Is it George's writing? Yes, I think so, said Julian. But why should she keep writing that? Do you suppose that's where they have taken her to? She might have heard them saying something and scribbled it down quickly, just in case we found the caravan and examined it. Red Tower. It sounds most peculiar. It must be a house with a red tower, I should think, said Dick. Well, we'd better get back and tell the police now, and they'll have to hunt for a red tower somewhere. Bitterly disappointed, the boys went back to Anne. She scrambled out from under her bush as they came. George is not there, said Dick. She's gone. But she has been there. We saw some scribbled writing on the wall of the caravan inside. How do you know it's hers? said Anne. Well, she's written Red Tower ever so many times, and the R's and the T's are just like hers, said Dick. We think she must have heard someone talking and say they were taking her to Red Tower, wherever that is. We're going straight back to the police now. I wish we hadn't trusted Joe. We've wasted such a lot of time. Let's have something to eat, said Julian. We won't sit down. We'll eat as we go. Come on. But somehow, nobody wanted anything to eat. Anne said she felt sick. Julian was too worried to eat. And Dick was so anxious to go that he felt he couldn't even wait to unpack sandwiches. So they started back down the path, following the wheel ruts as before. It suddenly grew very dark indeed, and on the leaves of the trees, heavy rain fell with a loud pattering sound. Thunder suddenly rolled. Anne caught hold of Julian's arm, startled. Julian, it's dangerous to be in a wood, isn't it? In a storm? Oh, Julian, we'll be struck by lightning. No, we shan't, said Julian. A wood's no more dangerous than anywhere else. It's sheltering under a lone tree somewhere that's dangerous. Look, there's a little clearing over there. We'll go to that if you like. But when they got to the little clearing, the rain was falling down in such heavy torrents that Julian could see that they would immediately be soaked through. He hurried Anne to a clump of bushes, and they crouched underneath, waiting for the storm to pass. Soon the rain stopped, and the thunder rolled away to the east. There had been no lightning that they could see. The wood grew just a little lighter, as if somewhere above the thick green branches the sun might be shining. I hate this wood, said Dick, crawling out from the bushes. Come on, for goodness sake, let's get back to the wheel rut path. He led the way through the trees. Julian called to him. Wait, Dick. Are you sure this is right? Dick stopped, anxious at once. Well, he said uncertainly, I thought it was, but I don't know. Do you? I thought it was through those trees there, said Julian, where that little clearing is. They went to it. It's not the same clearing, though, said Anne at once. The other clearing had a dead tree at one side. There's no dead tree here. Low, said Julian. Well, try this way then. They went to the left and soon found themselves in a thicker part of the wood than ever. 
Julian's heart went cold. What an absolute idiot he was! He might have known that it was madness to leave the only path they knew without marking it in some way. Now he hadn't the very faintest idea where the wheel-rut way was. It might be in any direction. He hadn't even the sun to guide him. He looked gloomily at Dick. Bad show, said Dick. Well, we'll have to make up our minds which way to go. We can't just stay here. We might go deeper and deeper and deeper, said Anne, with a sudden little gulp of fear. Julian put his arm round her shoulder. Well, if we go deeper and deeper, we shall come out on the other side, he said. It's not an endless wood, you know. Well, let's go straight on through the wood then, said Anne. We'll have to come out the other side sometime. The boys didn't tell her that it was impossible to go straight through a wood. It was necessary to go round clumps of bushes, to double back sometimes when they came to an impenetrable part, and to go either to the left or right when clumps of trees barred their way. It was quite impossible to go straight through. For all I know, we're probably going round and round in circles, like people do when they're lost in the desert, he thought. He blamed himself bitterly for having left the wheel ruts. They made their way on and on for about two or three hours, and then Anne stumbled and fell. I can't go on any further, she wept. I must have a rest. Dick glanced at his watch and whistled. Wherever had the time gone? It was almost three o'clock. He sat down by Anne and pulled her close to him. What we want is a jolly good meal, he said. We've had nothing since breakfast. Anne said she still wasn't hungry, but when she smelt the meat sandwiches that Joanna had made, she changed her mind. She was soon eating with the others and feeling much better. There's nothing to drink, unfortunately, said Dick. But Joanna's packed tomatoes and plums, too, so we'll have those instead of a drink. They're nice and juicy. They ate everything, though secretly Julian wondered if it was a good thing to wolf all their food at once. There was no telling how long they might be lost in Ravenswood. Joanna might get worried sooner or later and tell the police they had gone there and a search would be made but it might be ages before they were found. Anne fell asleep after her meal. The boys talked softly over her head. I don't much like this, said Dick. We set out to find George, and all we've done is to lose ourselves. We don't seem to be managing this adventure as well as we usually do. If we don't get out before dark, we'll have to make up some kind of bed under a bush, said Julian. We'll have another go when Anne wakes. And we'll do a bit of yelling, too. Then, if we're still lost, we'll bed down for the night. But when darkness came, and it came very early in that thick wood, they were still as much lost as ever. They were all hoarse with shouting, too. In silence, they pulled bracken from an open space and piled it under a sheltering bush. Thank goodness it's warm tonight, said Dick trying to sound cheerful. Well, we'll all feel much more lively in the morning. Cuddle up to me, Anne, and keep warm. That's right. Julian's on the other side of you. This is quite an adventure. 
I don't like adventures, said Anne in a small voice, and immediately fell asleep. Chapter 16 Visitor in the Night It took a long time for Julian and Dick to fall asleep. They were both worried. Worried about George and worried about themselves, too. They were also very hungry, and their hunger kept them awake as much as their anxiety. Dick fell asleep at last. Julian still lay awake, hoping that Anne was nice and warm between them. He didn't feel very warm himself. He heard the whisper of the leaves in the trees, and then the scamper of tiny paws behind his head. He wondered what animal it was. A mouse? Something ran lightly over his hair and he shivered. A spider, perhaps. Well, he couldn't move, or he would disturb Anne. If it wanted to make a web over his hair, it would have to. He shut his eyes and began to doze off. Soon he was dreaming. He awoke very suddenly with a jump. He heard the hoot of an owl. That must have been what wakened him. Now it would be ages before he slept again. He shut his eyes. The owl hooted again, and Julian frowned, hoping that Anne would not wake. She stirred and muttered in her sleep. Julian touched her lightly. She felt quite warm. He settled down again and shut his eyes. Then he opened them. He had heard something. Not an owl, or the pattering of some little animal's feet, but another sound. A bigger one. He listened. There was a rustling going on somewhere. Some much bigger animal was about. Julian was suddenly panic-stricken. Then he reasoned sternly with himself. There were no dangerous wild animals in this country. Not even a wolf. It was probably a badger out on a nightly prowl. He listened for any snuffling sound, but he heard none. Only the rustling as the animal moved about through the bushes. It came nearer. It came right over to him. He felt warm breath on his ear and made a quick movement of revulsion. He sat up swiftly and put out his hand. It fell on something warm and hairy. He withdrew his hand at once, feeling for his torch in panic. To touch something warm and hairy in the pitch darkness was too much even for Julian. Something caught hold of his arm, and he gave a yell and fought it off. Then he got the surprise of his life. The animal spoke. Julian, said a voice. It's me. Julian, his hands trembling, flashed his torch round. The light fell on a dirty, dark face with tangled hair over its eyes. Joe, said Julian. Joe, what on earth are you doing here? You scared me stiff. I thought you were some horrible, hairy animal. I must have touched your head. You did, said Joe, squeezing in under the bush. Anne and Dick, who had both woken up at Julian's yell, gazed at her, speechless with surprise. Joe, of all people, here in the middle of the wood. How had she got there? You're surprised to see me, aren't you? said Joe. I got caught by Jake. But he didn't know you were following behind. He dragged me off to the cottage he lives in and locked me up. He knew I'd spent the night at Kieran Cottage, and he said he was going to take me to my dad, 
who would give me the worst hiding I'd ever had in my life. So he would, too. So that's what happened to you, said Dick. Then I broke the window and got out, said Joe. That Jake. I'll never do a thing he tells me again, locking me up like that. I hate that worse than anything. Well, then, I came to look for you. How did you find us? said Julian in wonder. Well, first I went to the caravan, said Joe. Old Ma Smith, the one who always sits stirring a pot, she told me you'd been asking for my dad's caravan. I guessed you'd go off to find it. So along I went after you. But there was the caravan all by itself and nobody there. Not even George. Where is George? Do you know? asked Anne. No, I don't, said Joe. Dad's taken her somewhere else. I expect he put her on Blackie because Blackie's gone too. What about Timmy? asked Dick. Joe looked away. I reckon they've done Timmy in, she said. Nobody said anything. The thought that Timmy might have come to harm was too dreadful to speak about. How did you find us here? asked Julian at last. That was easy, said Joe. I can follow anybody's trail. I'd have come quicker, but it got dark. My, you did wander round, didn't you? Yes, we did, said Dick. Do you mean to say you followed all our wanderings in and out and round about? Oh, yes, said Joe. Properly tired me out, you did, with all your messing round and round. Why did you leave the wheel ruts? Julian told her. You're daft, said Joe. If you're going somewhere off the path, just mark the trees with a nick as you go along. One here and one there, and then you can always find your way back. We didn't even know we were lost till we were, said Anne. She took Joe's hand and squeezed it. She was so very, very glad to see her. Now they would be able to get out of this horrible wood. Joe was surprised and touched, but she withdrew her hand at once. She didn't like being fondled, though she would not have minded Dick taking her hand. Dick was her hero, someone above all others. He had been kind to her, and she was glad she had found him. We found something written on the caravan wall, said Julian. We think we know where George has been taken. It's a place called Red Tower. Do you know it? There's no place called Red Tower, said Joe at once. It's... Don't be silly, Joe. You can't possibly know if there's no place called Red Tower, said Dick impatiently. There may be hundreds of places with that name. That's the place we've got to find anyway. The police will know it. Joe gave a frightened movement. You promised you wouldn't tell the police. Yes, we promised that, but only if you took us to George, said Dick, and you didn't. And anyway, if you had taken us to the caravan, George wouldn't have been there. So we'll jolly well have to call in the police now and find out where Red Tower is. Was it Red Tower George had written down? asked Joe. Well then, I can take you to George. How can you when you say there's no place called Red Tower? began Julian, exasperated. I don't believe a word you say, Joe. You're a fraud. And I half believe you're still working for our enemies, too. I'm not, said Joe. I'm not. You're mean. 
I tell you, Red Tower isn't a place. Red Tower is a man. There was a most surprised silence after this astonishing remark. A man? Nobody had thought of that. Joe spoke again, pleased at the surprise she had caused. His name's Tower, and he's got red hair, flaming red, so he's called Red Tower, see? Are you making this up by any chance? asked Dick after a pause. You have made up things before, you know. All right. You can think I made it up then, said Joe sulkily. I'll go. Get yourselves out of this the best you can. You're mean. She wriggled away, but Julian caught hold of her arm. Oh, no, you don't. You'll just stay with us now, if I have to tie you to me all night long. You see, we find it difficult to trust you, Joe, and that's your fault, not ours. But we'll trust you just this once. Tell us about Red Tower and take us to where he lives. If you do that, we'll trust you forevermore. Will Dick trust me too? said Joe, trying to get away from Julian's hand. Yes, said Dick shortly. He felt as if he would dearly like to smack this unpredictable, annoying, extraordinary, yet somehow likeable ragamuffin girl. But I don't feel as if I like you very much at present. If you want us to like you as well as to trust you, you'll have to help us a lot more than you have done. All right, said Joe, and she wriggled down again. I'm tired. I'll show you the way out in the morning, and then I'll take you to Red's. But you won't like Red. He's a beast. She would say nothing more, so once again they tried to sleep. They felt happier now that Joe was with them and would show them the right way out of the wood. Julian hardly thought she would leave them in the lurch now. He shut his eyes and was soon dreaming. Joe woke first. She uncurled like an animal and stretched, forgetting where she was. She woke up the others, and they all sat up, feeling stiff, dirty, and hungry. I'm thirsty as well as hungry, complained Anne. Where can we get something to eat and drink? Better get back home for a wash and a meal, and to let Joanna know where we are, said Julian. Come on, Joe, show us the way. Joe led the way immediately. The others wondered how in the world she knew it. They were even more astonished when they found themselves on the wheel-rut path in about two minutes. Gracious, we were as near to it as that, said Dick. And yet we seemed to walk for miles through this horrible wood. You did, said Joe. You went round in an enormous circle, and you were almost back where you started. Come on, I'll take you my way back to your house now. It's much better than any bus. Chapter 17 Off in George's Boat Joanna was extremely thankful to see them. She had been so worried the night before that if the telephone wires in the house had been mended, she would most certainly have rung up the police. As it was, she couldn't telephone, and the night was so dark that she was really afraid of walking all the way down to the village. I haven't slept all night, she declared. This mustn't happen again, Julian. It's worrying me to death. And now you haven't got George or Timmy. I tell you, if they don't turn up soon, I'll take matters into my own hands. 
I haven't heard from your uncle and aunt either. Let's hope they're not lost too. She bustled about after this outburst and was soon frying sausages and tomatoes for them. They couldn't wait till they were cooked and helped themselves to great hunks of bread and butter. I can't even go and wash till I've had something, said Anne. I'm glad you know so many shortcuts back here, Joe. The wait didn't seem nearly so long as when we came by bus. It had really been amazing to see the deft, confident manner in which Joe had taken them home, through fields and little narrow paths, over stiles and across allotments. She was never once at a loss. They had arrived not long after Joanna had got up, and she had almost cried with surprise and relief when she had seen them walking up the front path. And a lot of dirty little tatterdemalions you looked, she said as she turned their breakfast out onto a big dish. And still do for that matter. I'll get the kitchen fire going for a bath for you. You might all be sister and brothers to that ragamuffin Joe. Joe didn't mind remarks of this sort at all. She chewed her bread and grinned. She wolfed the breakfast with no manners at all. But the others were nearly as bad, they were so hungry. It's a spade and trowel you want for your food this morning, not a knife and fork, said Joanna disapprovingly. You're just shoveling it in. No, I can't cook you any more, Julian. There's not a sausage left in the house, nor a bit of bacon either. You fill up with toast and marmalade. The bath water ran vigorously after breakfast. All four had baths. Joe didn't want to, but Joanna ran after her with a carpet beater, vowing and declaring she would beat the dust and dirt out of her if she didn't bath. So Joe bathed, and quite enjoyed it. They had a conference after breakfast. About this fellow, Red Tower, said Julian. Who is he, Joe? What do you know about him? Not much, said Joe. He's rich and he talks strange, and I think he's mad. He gets fellows like Dad and Jake to do his dirty work for him. What dirty work? asked Dick. Oh, stealing and such, said Joe vaguely. I don't really know. That doesn't tell me much. I just do what I'm told and don't ask questions. I don't want more slaps than I get. Where does he live? said Anne. Far away? He's taken a house on the cliff, said Joe. I don't know the way by land, only by boat. It's an odd place, like a small castle almost, with very thick stone walls. Just the place for red, my dad says. Have you been there? asked Dick eagerly. Joe nodded. Oh, yes, she said, twice. My dad took a big iron box there once, and another time he took something in a sack. I went with him. Why? asked Julian. I shouldn't have thought he'd wanted you messing round. I rode the boat, said Joe. I told you, Red's place is up on the cliff. We got to it by boat. I don't know the way by road. There's a sort of cave behind a cove we landed at. And we went in there. Red met us. He came from his house on the cliff, he said. But I don't know how. Dick looked at Joe closely. I suppose you'll say next that there's a secret way from the cave to the house, he said. Go on. Must be, said Joe. She suddenly glared at Dick. Don't you believe me? All right, find the place yourself. Well, it does sound like a tale in a book 
said Julian. You're sure it is all true, Joe? We don't want to go on a wild goose chase again, you know. There's no wild goose in my story, said Joe, puzzled. She hadn't the faintest idea what a wild goose chase was. I'm telling you about Red. I'm ready to go when you are. We'll have to have a boat, though. We'll take George's, said Dick, getting up. Look, Joe, I think we'd better leave Anne behind this time. I don't like taking her into something that may be dangerous. I want to come, said Anne at once. No, you stay with me, said Joanna. I want company today. I'm getting scared of being by myself with all these things happening. You stay with me. So Anne stayed behind, really rather glad, and watched the other three go off together. Joe slipped into the hedge to avoid being seen by Jake in case he was anywhere about. Julian and Dick went down to the beach and glanced round to make sure the traveller was nowhere in sight. They beckoned to Joe, and she came swiftly from hiding and leapt into George's boat. She lay down in it so that she couldn't be seen. The boys hauled the boat down to the sea. Dick jumped in, and Julian pushed off when a big wave came. Then he jumped in too. How far up the coast is it? he asked Joe, who was still at the bottom of the boat. I don't know, said Joe, with her usual irritating vagueness. Two hours? Three hours, maybe? Time didn't mean the same to Joe as it did to the others. For one thing, Joe had no wrist watch as they had, always there to be glanced at. She wouldn't have found one any use if she had, because she couldn't tell the time. Time was just day and night to her, nothing else. Dick put up the little sail. The wind was in their favour, so he thought he might as well use it. They would get there all the more quickly. Did you bring the lunch that Joanna put up for us? said Julian to Dick. I can't see it anywhere. Joe, you must be lying on it, said Dick. It won't hurt it, said Joe. She sat up as soon as they were well out to sea and offered to take the tiller. She was very deft with it, and the boys soon saw that they could leave her to guide the boat. Julian unfolded the map he had brought with him. I wonder whereabouts this place is where Red lives, he said. It's pretty desolate all the way up to the next place, Port Limersley. If there is a castle-like building, it must be a very lonely place to live in. There's not even a little fishing village shown for miles. The boat went on and on, scudding at times before a fairly strong wind. Julian took the tiller from Joe. We've come a long way already, he said. Where is this place? Are you sure you'll know it, Joe? Of course, said Joe scornfully. I think it's round that far-off rocky cliff. She was right. As they rounded the high cliff, which jutted fiercely with great slanting rocks, she pointed in triumph. There you are. See that place up there? That's Red's place. The boys looked at it. It was a dour grey stone building and was, as Joe had said, a little like a small castle. It brooded over the sea with one square tower overlooking the waves. There's a cove before you come to the place, said Joe. Watch out for it. It's very well hidden. It certainly was. The boat went right past it before they saw it. There it is, cried Joe urgently. 
They took the sail down and then rowed back. The cove lay between two high layers of rock that jutted out from the cliff. They rowed right into it. It was very quiet and calm there, and their boat merely rose and fell as the water swelled and subsided under it. Can anyone see us from the house above? asked Dick, as they rowed right to the back of the cove. I don't know, said Joe. I shouldn't think so. Look, pull the boat up behind that big rock. We don't know who else might come here. They dragged the boat up. Dick draped it with great armfuls of seaweed, and soon it looked almost like a rock itself. Now, what next? said Julian. Where's this cave you were talking about? Up here, said Joe, and began to climb up the rocky cliff like a monkey. Both the boys were very good climbers, but soon they found it impossible to get any further. Joe scrambled down to them. What's the matter? she said. If my dad can climb up, surely you can. Your dad was an acrobat, said Julian, sliding down a few feet much too suddenly. Ooh, I don't much like this. I wish we had a rope. There's one in the boat. I'll get it, said Joe, and slithered down the cliff to the cove below at a most alarming rate. She climbed up again with the rope. She went on a good bit higher and tied the rope to something. It hung down to where Dick and Julian stood clinging for dear life. It was much easier to climb up with the help of a rope. Both boys were soon standing on a ledge looking into a curious shaped cave. It was oval shaped and very dark. In here, said Joe, and led the way. Dick and Julian followed stumblingly. Where in the world were they going to now? Chapter 18 Things Begin to Happen Joe led them into a narrow, rocky tunnel, and then out into a wider cave whose walls dripped with damp. Julian was thankful for his torch. It was eerie and chilly and musty. He shivered. Something brushed his face, and he leapt back. What was that? he said. Bats, said Joe. There are hundreds of them here. That's why the place smells so sour. Come on, we go round this rocky bit here into a better cave. They squeezed round a rocky corner and came into a drier cave that did not smell so strongly of bats. I haven't been any farther than this, said Joe. This is where me and Dad came and waited for Red. He suddenly appeared, but I don't know where from. Well, he must have come from somewhere, said Dick, switching on his torch too. There's a passage, probably. We'll soon find it. He and Julian began to hunt round the cave, looking for a passage or little tunnel, or even a hole that led into the cliff, upwards towards the house. Obviously, Red must have come down some such passage to reach the cave. Joe stayed in a corner, waiting. She had no torch. Suddenly, the boys had a tremendous shock. A voice boomed into their cave, a loud and angry voice that made their hearts beat painfully. So, you dare to come here? Joe slipped behind a rock immediately, like an animal going to cover. The boys stood where they were, rooted to the spot. Where did that voice come from? Who are you? boomed the voice. 
Who are you? shouted Julian. Come out and show yourself. We've come to see a man called Red. Take us to him. There was a moment's silence, as if the owner of the voice was rather taken aback. Then it boomed out again. Why do you want to see Red? Who sent you? Nobody. We came because we want our cousin back, and her dog too, boomed Julian, making a funnel of his hands and trying to outdo the other voice. There was another astonished silence. Then two legs appeared out of a hole in the low ceiling, and someone leapt lightly down beside them. The boy started back in surprise. They hadn't expected that the voice came from the roof of the cave. Julian flashed his torch on the man. He was a giant-like fellow with flaming red hair. His eyebrows were red too, and he had a red beard that partly hid a cruel mouth. Julian took one look into the man's eyes, and then no more. He's mad, he thought. So, this is Red Tower. What is he? A scientist, like Uncle Quentin, jealous of Uncle's work? Or a thief, working on a big scale, trying to get important papers and sell them? He's mad, whatever he is. Red was looking closely at the two boys. So, you think I have your cousin, he said. Who told you such a stupid tale? Julian didn't answer. Red took a threatening step towards him. Who told you? I'll tell you that when the police come, said Julian boldly. Red stepped back. The boys? What do they know? Why should they come here? Answer me, boy. There's a lot to know about you, Mr. Red Tower, said Julian. Who sent men to steal my uncle's papers? Who sent a note to ask for another lot? Who kidnapped our cousin so that she could be held till the papers were sent? Who brought her here from Simmy's old caravan? Who? Ah, said Red, and there was panic in his voice. How do you know all this? It isn't true. But the police, have they heard this fantastic tale too? What do you suppose? said Julian, wishing with all his heart that the police did know and that he was not merely bluffing. Red pulled at his beard. His green eyes gleamed as he thought quickly and urgently. He suddenly called loudly, turning his head up to the hole in the ceiling. Markov, come down. Two legs were swung down through the hole, and a short, burly man leapt down beside the two startled boys. Go down the cliff. You will find a boat in the cove somewhere. The boat we saw these boys coming in, said Red sharply. Smash it to pieces. Then come back here and take the boys to the yard. Tie them up. We must leave quickly and take the girl with us. The man stood listening, his face sullen. How can we go, he said. You know the helicopter is not ready. You know that. Make it ready then, snapped Red. We leave tonight. The police will be here. Do you hear that? This boy knows everything. He has told me. And the police must know everything too. I tell you, we must go. What about the dog? said the man. Shoot it, ordered Red. Shoot it before we go. It's a brute of a dog. We should have shot it before. Now go and smash the boat. The man disappeared round the rocky corner that led into the cave of bats. 
Julian clenched his fist. He hated to think of George's boat being smashed to bits. Red stood there waiting, his eyes glinting in the light of the torches. I'd take you with us too if there was room, he suddenly snarled at Julian. Yes, and drop you into the sea. You can tell your uncle he'll hear from me about his precious daughter. We'll make an exchange. If he wants her back, he can send me the notes I want. And many thanks for coming to warn me. I'll be off before the police break in. He began to pace up and down the cave, muttering. Dick and Julian watched in silence. They felt afraid for George. Would Red really take her off in his helicopter? He looked mad enough for anything. The sullen man came back at last. It's smashed, he said. Right, said Red. I'll go first, then the boys, then you, and boot them if they make any trouble. Red swung himself up into the hole in the roof. Julian and Dick followed, not seeing any point in resisting. The man behind was too sulky to stand any nonsense. He followed immediately. There had been no sign of Joe. She had kept herself well hidden, scared stiff. Julian didn't know what to do about her. He couldn't possibly tell Red about her, and yet it seemed terrible to leave her behind, all alone. Well, she was a sharp-brained little monkey. Maybe she would think up something for herself. Red led the way through another cave, into a passage with such a low roof that he had to walk bent almost double. The man behind had now switched on a very powerful torch, and it was easier to see. The passage sloped upwards and was obviously leading to the building on the cliff. At one part, it was so steep that a handrail had been put for the climber to help himself up. Then came a flight of steps hewn out of the rock itself. Rough, badly shaped steps, so steep that it was quite an effort to climb from one to the next. At the top of the steps was a stout door set on a broad ledge. Red pushed it open and daylight flooded in. Julian blinked. He was looking out on an enormous yard paved with great flat stones with weeds growing in all the crevices and cracks. In the middle stood a helicopter. It looked very strange and out of place in that old yard. The house, with its one tall square tower, was built round three sides of the yard. It was covered with creeper and thick-stemmed ivy. A high wall ran along the fourth side with an enormous gate in the middle. It was shut, and from where he stood, Julian could see the huge bolts that were drawn across. It's almost like a small fort, thought Julian in astonishment. Then he felt himself seized and taken to a shed nearby. His arms were forced behind him, and his wrists were tightly tied. Then the rope was run through an iron loop and tied again. Julian glared at the burly fellow, now doing the same to Dick. He twisted about to try to see how the rope was tied, but he couldn't even turn, he was so tightly tethered. He looked up at the tower. A small, forlorn face was looking out of the window there. Julian's heart jumped and beat fast. That must be poor old George up there. He wondered if she had seen them. He hoped not, because she would know that he and Dick had been captured and she would be very upset. 
Where was Timmy? There seemed no sign of him. But wait a minute. What was that lying inside what looked like a summer house on the opposite side of the yard? Was it Timmy? Surely he would have barked a welcome when he heard them coming into the yard, if it was Timmy. Is that my cousin's dog? he asked the sullen man. The man nodded. Yes, he's been doped half the time. He barked so. Savage brute, isn't he? Ought to be shot, I reckon. Red had gone across the yard and had disappeared through a stone archway. The sullen man now followed him. Julian and Dick were left by themselves. We've muddled things again, said Julian with a groan. Now these fellows will be off and away and take George with them. They've been nicely warned. Dick said nothing. He felt very miserable, and his bound wrists hurt him too. Both boys stood there, wondering what would happen to them. Psst! What was that? Julian turned round sharply and looked in the direction of the door that led from underground into the yard. Joe stood there, half hidden by the archway over the door. Psst! I'll come and untie you. Is the coast clear? Chapter 19 Joe is very surprising. Joe, said the boys together, and their spirits lifted at once. Come on! There was no one about in the yard. Joe skipped lightly across from the doorway and slipped inside the shed. There's a knife in my back pocket, said Julian. Get it out. It would be quicker to cut these ropes than to untie them. My word, Joe, I was never so pleased to see anyone in my life. Joe grinned as she hauled out Julian's sturdy pocket knife. She opened it and ran her thumb lightly over the blade. It was beautifully sharp. She set to work to saw the blade across the thick rope. It cut easily through the fibres. I waited behind, she said rapidly. Then I followed when it was safe. But it was very dark and I didn't like it. Then I came to that door and peeped out. I was glad when I saw you. Good thing the men didn't guess you were there, said Dick. Good old Joe. I take back any nasty thing I've ever said about you. Joe beamed. She cut the last bit of rope that bound Julian, and he swung himself away from the iron loop and began to rub his stiff, aching wrists. Joe set to work on Dick's bonds. She soon had those cut through, too. Where's George? she asked, after she had helped Dick to rub his wrists and arms. Up in that tower, said Julian. If we dared to go out in that yard, you could look up and see her. And there's poor old Tim, look, half doped, lying in that summerhouse place over there. I shan't let him be shot, said Joe. He's a nice dog. I shall go and drag him down into those caves underground. Not now, said Julian, horrified. If you're seen now, you'll spoil everything. We'll all be tied up then. But Joe had already darted over to the summer house and was fondling poor old Timmy. The slam of a door made the boys jump and sent Joe into the shadows at the back of the summer house at once. It was Red coming across the yard. Quick, he's coming over here, said Dick in a panic. Let's go back to the iron loops and put our hands behind us so that he thinks we're still bound. So when Red came over to the door of the shed, 
It looked exactly as if the boys still had their hands tied behind them. He laughed. You can stay here till the police come, he said. Then he shut the shed door and locked it. He strolled over to the helicopter and examined it thoroughly. Then back he went to the door he had come from, opened it, and slammed it shut. He was gone. When everything was quiet, Joe sped back from the summer house to the shed. She unlocked the door of the shed. Come out, she said, and we'll lock it again. Then nobody will know you aren't here. Hurry! There was nothing for it but to come out and hope there was nobody looking. Joe locked the shed door after them and hurried them back to the door that led underground. They slipped through it and half fell down the steep steps. Thanks, Joe, said Dick. They sat down. Julian scratched his head and for the life of him could not think of anything sensible to do. The police were not coming because they didn't know a thing about Red or where George was or anything. And before long, George would be flown off in that helicopter and Timmy would be shot. Julian thought of the high square tower and groaned. There's no way of getting George out of that tower, he said aloud. It'll be locked and barred or George would have got out at once. We can't even get to her. It's no good trying to make our way into the house. We'd be seen and caught at once. Joe looked at Dick. Do you badly want George to be rescued? She said. That's a silly question, said Dick. I want it more than anything else in the world. Well, I'll go and get her then, said Joe. And she got up as if she really meant it. Don't make jokes now said Julian. This really is serious, Joe. Well, so am I, retorted Joe. I'll get her out. You see if I don't. Then you'll know I'm trustable, won't you? You think I'm mean and thieving and not worth a penny. I expect you're right. But I can do some things you can't. And if you want this thing, I'll do it for you. How? said Julian, astonished and disbelieving. Joe sat down again. You saw that tower, didn't you? she began. Well, it's a big one, so I reckon there's more than one room in it. And if I can get into the room next to George's, I could undo her door and set her free. And how do you think you're going to get into the room next to hers? said Dick scornfully. Climb up the wall, of course, said Joe. It's set thick with ivy. I've often climbed up walls like that. The boys looked at her. Were you the face at the window by any chance? said Julian, remembering Anne's fright. I bet you were. You're like a monkey climbing and darting about. But you can't climb up that great high wall, so don't think it. You'd fall and be killed. We couldn't let you. Pooh, said Joe with great scorn. Fall off a wall like that? I've climbed up a wall without any ivy at all. There are always holes and cracks to hold on to. That one would be easy. Julian was quite dumbfounded to think that Joe really meant all this. Dick remembered that Joe's father was an acrobat. Perhaps that kind of thing was in the family. You just ought to see me on a tightrope, said Joe earnestly. I can dance on it, and I never have a safety net underneath. That's baby play. Well, I'm going. 
Without another word, she climbed the steep steps lightly as a goat and stood poised in the archway of the door. All was quiet. Like a squirrel, she leapt and bounded over the courtyard and came to the foot of the ivy-covered tower. Julian and Dick were now at the doorway that led into the yard, watching her. She'll be killed, said Julian. Talk about pluck, said Dick. I never saw such a kid in my life. There she goes, just like a monkey. And sure enough, up the ivy went Joe, climbing lightly and steadily. Her hands reached out and tested each ivy stem before she threw her weight on it, and her feet tried each one too before she stood on it. Once she slipped when an ivy stem came away from the wall. Julian and Dick watched, their hearts in their mouths. But Joe merely clutched at another piece of stem and steadied herself once. Then up she went again. Up and up. Past the first story, past the second, and up to the third. Only one more now, and she would be up to the topmost one. She seemed very small as she neared the top. I can't bear to look, and I can't bear not to, said Dick pretending to shield his eyes and almost trembling with nervousness. If she fell now, what should we do? Do shut up, said Julian between his teeth. She won't fall. She's like a cat. There, she's making for the window next to George's. It's open at the bottom. Joe now sat triumphantly on the broad windowsill of the room next to George's. She waved impudently to the boys far below. Then she pushed with all her might at the window to open it a little more. It wouldn't budge. So Jo laid herself flat, and by dint of much wriggling and squeezing, she managed to slip through the narrow space between the bottom of the window pane and the sill. She disappeared from sight. Both boys heaved heartfelt sighs of relief. Dick found that his knees were shaking. He and Julian retired into the underground passage below the steep steps and sat there in silence. Worse than a circus, said Dick at last. I'll never be able to watch acrobats again. What's she doing now, do you suppose? Joe was very busy. She had fallen off the inside windowsill with a bump and bruised herself on the floor below, but she was used to bruises. She picked herself up and shot behind a chair in case anyone had heard her. Nobody seemed to have heard anything, so she peeped cautiously out. The room was furnished with enormous pieces of furniture, old and heavy. Dust was on everything, and cobwebs hung down from the stone ceiling. Jo tiptoed to the door. Her feet were bare and made no sound at all. She looked out. There was a spiral stone stairway nearby, going downwards and on each side was a door. There must be four rooms in the tower then, one for each corner, two windows in each. She looked at the door next to the room she was in. That must be the door of George's room. There was a very large key in the lock, and a great bolt had been drawn across. Joe leapt across and dragged at the bolt. It made a loud noise, and she darted back into the room again but still nobody came. Back she went to the door again, and this time turned the enormous key. 
It was well oiled and turned easily. Jo pushed open the door and put her head cautiously round. George was there, a thin and unhappy George sitting by the window. She stared at Jo as if she couldn't believe her eyes. Psst, said Jo, enjoying all this very much indeed. I've come to get you out. End of Disc 3